Amen. Thank you guys so much. Um, Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm on staff here at uh, New Denver Church, and whether you are joining us today online or in person, we're so glad to have you guys. If you guys have been anything like me during COVID-19, you guys have started baking and cooking and doing some fun experiments with food. And in doing this, you guys have probably realized that there are some flavors, some ingredients that are pretty powerful and pretty strong, right? An example of this is if you guys put four cloves of garlic in something, the whole dish is going to end up tasting like garlic. If you add peanut butter into something, the whole thing is going to end up tasting like peanut butter. And this isn't a bad thing. I think that actually these powerful flavors are super, super important, and we need them in dishes to make them pop. We need them in dishes to actually make the dishes taste good, right? And I think that I can show that these flavors are important to you. If I ask what your favorite flavor is, you're probably going to say something like garlic or onion or salt or peanut butter or caramel or something like this, these strong, powerful flavors. We really need them in in our dishes in order to make them pop. Like how boring would chocolate chip cookies be without the chocolate chips? How unflattering would a sandwich be if it was just jelly without the peanut butter? And what if we had salsa that was just not spicy? It wouldn't be good, right? We need these powerful flavors. But I think sometimes we do this in our faith, too. We really rely on these strong and powerful stories in our faith. And that's a good thing. We need them, right? Our, our whole faith is predicated on one story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming down here, dying, resurrecting, back to life in three days. We need these stories. They shape us and they mold us. And it's not just this one story. We all have this idea in our head. If I say the book, 1 Corinthians, the first thing that's going to pop up in your head is love is patient, love is kind. If you've been to any wedding ever, you've heard this. I said this in my own wedding. Um, We're going to need these stories. Or if I say the word Exodus, you're probably going to think of the parting of the Red Sea and people walking right through it. Or if I say the name David, you may think of the story of, of David and Goliath. This awesome story where this kid beats this warrior giant all by the grace of God. Or on the other side, you may think of the story of Bathsheba, of infidelity and murder and power. These stories shape us and we need them. They're vital to our faith. But what happens in in cooking when we only care about the strong and powerful flavors? If you guys have ever tried to make pumpkin bread or banana bread, you want to get these gross, old, mushy bananas that are brown and they're disgusting because they have this great flavor. But if you've ever tried to make bread and forgot to add this little insignificant thing called yeast, it's just going to be mush. It's not going to be any good. Uh, My wife and I, as I said, we've been baking more. And a few months ago, we tried to make chocolate chip cookies and we forgot a quarter tablespoon of vanilla. This small little ingredient didn't seem to be too much. And when the cookies came out, they were terrible, right? They, they didn't have any flavor. They were hard as rocks. They were this gross, like, black color. And it's all because we forgot this little flavor. And I'm sure that you guys have experienced this, too, whether it's using baking powder instead of baking soda, salt instead of sugar. If you make a little mistake and you forget a little insignificant, seemingly insignificant thing, the whole dish is going to come out poor. And I think as, as, I, as I begin to preach on the story here in a few minutes, this is a story that seems kind of like vanilla or baking powder. It's a story that I, I have never heard preached on myself. Maybe you guys have. Um, but if you read it, it's going to seem like it's just an add-on. It's tacked on at the end of this beautiful chapter. And it's surrounded by all of these big and strong and powerful stories. 
But if we forget this little passage, if we don't apply what's in this little passage to our lives, we're not going to be able to serve Jesus as well as we could. We're missing something vital to the faith. But just kind of to set the context up here, we're going to be in Matthew 17. Um, I'm going to walk us through these three really big stories. But the one I'm going to preach on is actually at the end. It's 24 through 27. But as, I think it's important to understand where, where the story is within the context of Matthew. The story, sorry, Matthew 17 begins with this weird story called the Transfiguration. And if you're not a Christian or if you haven't been in church for a while, no worries. All this story is, is Jesus and a couple of his close friends go up on this mountain. And when they're up on this mountain, they hear God talk to Jesus. And he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And as he's up there, there's this, these two dead prophets of Moses and Elijah up here. And it's this crazy, crazy scene. And God's basically saying, hey, this is the new Moses. Follow him and he'll lead us into a new exodus, right? And this story is so important that each of the gospel writers explain what Jesus looked like in three really vivid ways, right? So in Matthew, it says that Jesus' face as he was talking to God shined like the sun and his garments became light. It's awesome. It's like Jesus is the spotlight of all creation. It's beautiful. And in Luke, it says that his clothing became like flashes of lightning, if you guys are, are from the Midwest or occasionally here now, we get thunderstorms, not much anymore. Um, but when you see these lightning storms, they're beautiful and they're awe-inspiring. And that's what Luke says that Jesus looked like. And then Matthew says that his clothes were like super bleached. And that just kind of is a letdown, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, thanks, Mark, that makes sense that you said that. That's why you have the smallest gospel. So thank you for that. Um, you're not good. But no, Mark is a great book. But it's, it's just funny if like. This story is so important that they're trying, they're grasping at ways to describe what, what Jesus looked like. It makes sense why we put so much weight of our faith in this one story. And then in the next story, it's Jesus removes this demon from a little boy, and the disciples tried to remove this demon and they couldn't, and then Jesus responds with a phrase that's been on every bumper sticker, it's been on every mug. Shoot, I even think it was on my grandma's wall as a quote, it's something that she would do. But it's this, it says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a little mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you, right? Just like with it, as we've been looking in this series, Jesus uses really ordinary objects to share truths about the kingdom of God. And the same here, if you use the smallest seed you could think of, this tiny little mustard seed, that's what your faith is, I can work through you. Super important, right? And lastly, in, in this chapter, Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, hey guys, I'm gonna go and die, but I'm gonna rise again in three days and don't worry, it's all gonna be okay. But the disciples don't get it, right? It feels like us, it feels like me most of the time. I, I don't get it, so I think we're in good company here. They don't understand what's going on and they, and they leave sad. But the point still rings true. This is a powerful story of Jesus saying he's gonna go die. I mean, that's why we're here today. We're walking with Jesus to the cross in this time of Lent. It's a super important and powerful story. And then now we get to this story. It's in Matthew 24, sorry, Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. And it's surrounded, as we just saw, by these super powerful and strong stories. And it just seems like it's tacked on at the end as an aside. In fact, this story is not in any other gospel. It's not in any other account of Jesus' life. And as we'll see, it's just kind of weird, right? 
But in this story, Jesus is gonna use some everyday objects. He's gonna use some everyday obligations to teach us what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. It's gonna teach us how we ought to live and what we should do. So as, as we begin, let's look here in verse 24. And it says this. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, which is just a city in Galilee, the collectors came, sorry, the collectors of two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Kind of weird. We may not know what drachma is or anything like that, but basically it's just these coins that are equivalent to a few days labor that you pay to the temple tax, uh, that you pay to the temple, pardon me, just so that the temple can keep being upkeep. It's just a, a little fee that you pay. Everyone pays it. Every male above the age of 20 pays this so the temple can be in good condition. And this seems like a weird question to ask, but the reason they asked this question is at this time, uh, there were two religious groups that actually didn't want to pay this temple tax. They believed that you shouldn't. It's a pretty innocent question, but it could also be understood as rabbis at this time didn't have to pay the tax. So they could even be questioning Jesus' character of, hey, does your rabbi have to pay this? Because we don't recognize him. He doesn't, doesn't seem like anyone we know. And this question is, is a leading question, right? It's, it's an implied yes. It's like when your spouse or your mom goes, are you guys gonna do the dishes? Or when your friend goes and he says, hey, are you gonna give me some gas money? Super awkward, but you, you have to say yes, right? <laughs> There's really no other way to get around it. The, the answer is yes. And then as, as we continue on to this, Peter then responds here in verse 25, and he says, yes, he does. And then as soon as he says that, it seems like they're going to the house they're staying at the Airbnb of their day. Um, and Jesus asked Peter, what do you think, Simon? What do you think, Peter? So Peter says, of course we pay the temple tax. We're, we're Jews above 20, we're, we're good Jewish people. Of course we pay this temple tax. And then Jesus does what every person fears as a kid. When a teacher goes up and says, what do you think, Matt? Like, my hands are still clammy just thinking about that. I hate being called out, and that's what Jesus does here to Peter. It's not fun. And, the, and as we continue on, it's in this verse, we get kind of, Jesus elaborates on this question a little bit further. He says, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? During this time, families of, of royal people didn't pay taxes. Even within the Roman kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom don't pay the taxes. It's all the people that have been conquered, right? So when Jesus is saying, hey, who ends up paying the taxes? Is it the royals? Is it the citizens? Or is it kind of the outcasts? Is it the people who don't? And the irony is kind of rich here of, well, if the kings of, this own, of their own rulers don't have to pay the taxes, I'm king of everything. Do, do my people have to pay these obligatory taxes? Do my people have to pay money to these social obligations? It's kind of what it's asking. I'm the king. I own everything. Do you have to pay this? And then in verse 26, it continues, and Peter answers this question. He says, from others. Then Jesus said to them, the children are exempt. Peter got it right. He got the answer right. Jesus asked him this question, and for one of the few times in scriptures, Peter got it right, which makes us feel pretty good. Sometimes we can get the things right. And then Jesus said to him, hey, my children, we don't have to pay these taxes. We're exempt. We don't need to do this. Just like the Roman citizens are exempt, since I'm king of everything, Peter, 
don't have to worry. And then as we continue on to the last verse within this, this is where the story gets weird, it gets kind of funky, and it makes us not understand. If the story would have ended now, we all could be like, oh, that makes total sense, but it doesn't. In verse 27, it says this, but that, so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line and take the first fish that you catch. Open its mouth and you will find four drachma coin. Take it and give it to, my, uh, and give it to them for my tax and for yours. That's weird, right? Jesus is... People are exempt from doing this, but Jesus tells Peter to go and to catch a fish and in this fish open up its mouth and that there will be money in there? Doesn't make too much sense. And I think there's, a, there's really two main things that we have to look at and sit in and, and break down from this weird verse and even this weird passage. It's the first is, what the heck is going on with this fish? <laughs> and why does it end? Like, it doesn't even... It doesn't say that Peter went out and he caught a fish and he opened its mouth and miraculously there were four coins in there. It's just, this is where the story ends. It would be so cool if there was a verse saying, and Peter went and did this and he caught it and there were like 20 drachma coins, but we don't get that. It just kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger. And I think that this is important to think about and kind of look into. There's a lot of scholars that think that Peter actually didn't go and do this and they didn't catch coins and there's some that think that he did. I personally land on the side that he did and he got it and God provides for those that he loves, even for weird social obligations. But I think if we get hung up on this weird idea of catching a fish and it having coins in its mouth, we miss the point of this passage. I don't think we're asking the right question if we're concerned about what the heck's going on with this fish. The weird part of this story is not that Peter was told to take coins out of fish, a fish's mouth. The weird part of this story is that Jesus tells the disciples to pay the tax so it doesn't offend anyone. It doesn't make a lot of sense because literally in two chapters earlier, in Matthew 15, uh, in verses 12 through 14, he, he offends the Pharisees and he doesn't, he's not upset about it. He actually continues to offend them. And it says this in Matthew 15, 12 through 14. Then the disciples came to him and, and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus replied, every plant that my father has not planted will be pulled up by its roots. Leave them. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. It's weird, because in, in, literally in two chapters before this, Jesus wasn't upset about offending people. He wasn't upset about hurting their feelings. And I think a question we may ask is, is Jesus contradicting himself? Two chapters, and in 15 he says, go ahead and, and offend these people, but in this he says, pay this tax so we don't offend anyone. It seems a little, seems like a contradiction. I don't know, maybe it's just a weird translation error and they're using different words, but in English we have to translate it this way to make it better. That's not the case. It's actually the same word in Greek. That's where we get our word scandal from. So what do we do here? Like in everything, it seems that context is super important within this story. Jesus is using these ordinary objects of, of coins and this ordinary social obligation of taxes to, to teach us something about the kingdom of God. As we look back in chapter 15, the passage that I just read, he's talking to these Pharisees that are leading people astray. 
right? He, he calls them blind guides leading the blind into the pit. The results of not pointing people to the Messiah, of not pointing people to the Savior, has eternal consequences. And Jesus has to stand up for the faith and say, no, you guys are leading people down the wrong path. And the results are eternal. We, we can't let you do this. Follow me. My way is the correct way. And as, and as Christians, at some points in our life, we're going to have to offend people, not because we're, we're jerks and we're mean, but because we stand and we have different morals and different motives than anyone else, right? Maybe this is you when your friends in, in college are now ask you, hey, do you want to go party and go drinking and stay up all night? And you have to say, no, I, I can't because I'm a Christian. I can't do that. Or maybe it's your boss that asks you, hey, I need you to do something morally gray, kind of unethical for the company, but it's going to do us really well. The company's going to prosper, and you may even get a raise out of this. And as a Christian, you kind of have to step back and say, I, I, I can't. I'm sorry. I have, I have morals that I have to stand up to, and they may get offended, they may get upset, but we can't sin, right? We can't go on living like the world in some ways. We're going to have to offend people innately just because we're, we're different. We're not of this anymore. We're not of this world anymore. But this does not mean in everything we have to offend people. Christ kind of makes it pretty clear within the story. If it's not a, a pillar of the faith, if, if we're not actively engaging in sin, it's okay that we accommodate the world in some ways. We can pay a tax that we know we don't have to pay in order for us, our perception to be okay. Jesus is willing to accommodate others so that the gospel message isn't more difficult for them to hear, right? And this is frustrating because this means it's all kind of dependent on context. Right? We're not going to go and we're not going to actively sin if someone asks us to do something that's, that's not right. We have to say no, but if it's kind of amoral or something that doesn't have really any moral connotations, it's kind of up to us. And this is really frustrating. Right? We, we wish that Jesus' teachings were black and were white. You do this in this situation, but you do this in this situation. And Jesus is using coins and the obligation of temple tax to teach us that it seems like he's way more interested in teaching people how to think than giving them a set of rules to follow. Jesus is more interested in teaching us how to think in each circumstance than giving us a laundry list of rules that we have to follow. I mean, that's what the law was. These are what's how the law for most things, right? But Jesus doesn't give that to us. And don't we wish that it was just the laundry list? Don't we wish there was, hey, you do this and you do that, but it doesn't seem like Christ is interested in that. It's hard because everything in our life is based upon circumstance. Most things in life are situational. And what he's using these coins and this temple tax to do is teach us how to think. To teach us how can we make the gospel as accessible to those who are not within the faith? Because let's be honest, guys. If, if those of us who are Christians, we have kind of a weird premise for our faith, right? God comes down and he dies, then he rises again, right? We, 
it's a hard message to get on board with. And it makes sense. We're all Christians. We all believe it's true. But let's not cause any other stumbling block. Let's not offend anyone to where it's more difficult for them to come. But I don't know about y'all. In my circumstance, Christians have picked a lot of really silly fights, right? The, the easy one we can go back to is the Crusades, right, of we thought that we had to go and capture back Jerusalem because that was the right thing to do and people literally died on the wrong hill because of it. Or maybe growing up for, I had a lot of friends that couldn't read Harry Potter. It's pretty silly when you think about it, right? Um, it's a great book, but that's a hill that we, we died on. And I think that if we, and I think today that we have a lot of other hills that we as Christians are, are dying on that are silly, Right? Why not be the temple taxes Jesus taught about or, or the crusades? I think we have an object today that I could point to that is a hill that some Christians have died on. I don't know why, but why have so many Christians not die, are dying on a hill of not having to wear this? How many silly fights have you heard about this thing, this little mask? And why are churches refusing to mandate people to wear them? I, I know a church um, that refused to wear masks, that refused to make its people wear masks, and most people on staff ended up getting COVID, and they had to shut it down, and it was this really awkward PR thing. But more than that, how many people outside the faith are looking and saying, what are they doing? Why aren't they wearing their masks? How are they not protecting and loving us, right? I think if we just would have accepted Jesus' teaching in this, and it's that Christ has died on the hill so that we don't have to die on every other one. Yes, there are things in our faith, there are hills, there's Christians that we have to die on. But not everyone. There, there are pillars and cores of our faith that we can't let go of. We can't go on sinning, we can't go on living the lives that we were when we weren't Christians, but we have a lot of Christian freedom, right? We have a lot of things that we can use, so that we can do that are okay. Christian freedom means that we have the ability not to demand our rights, but just to do the right thing. And yes, I use this example of masks, but we're all here in New Denver. You're all wearing masks if you're here. We're all socially distanced. We even shut down for a few months because we thought that was the right thing to do. So maybe a silly example to bring up, but I think that there are hills in our own lives that we're willing to die on that Christ wouldn't. If Christ has come and died on the hill, on Golgotha, on the cross, then that means we don't have to die on every hill. So what are these hills that you are, are willing to die on that Christ wouldn't? Are you willing to die on the hill of, of just being right? This could be in a relationship with your friends or spouse or, or coworkers where they come and they ask you for your advice and you give it and then they don't listen at all and they run away and do maybe even the exact opposite of what you say, and secretly, you hope that they fail, right? You hope that it doesn't go well for them because they didn't listen to you. In these situations, it's hard because we don't, they didn't listen to us. We don't want them to do well secretly in our own heart, but that's not how a good Christian lives, right? A Christian friend does not let their friends fail for their own pride. 
A Christian spouse does not let their spouse fail for their own pride, and a Christian coworker does not let their coworkers fail for their own pride. It's selfish to you, and it's selfish to them. But Christ has died on the hill, so you don't have to die on the hill of always being right or trying to prove yourself. It's not a hill that we have to die on. Maybe it's not the hill of being right. Maybe it's the hill of, of selfish ambition, right? Maybe you are working and you're grinding because you really want to get this promotion or even you want to provide for your family and make a lot of money or you're working towards a degree so that when people see you, they know, wow, that's, that person has whatever degree, right? Or even, man, it'd be so awesome to have a Christian in leadership position X. That's all you spend your time doing. You neglect your family, your friends, your spouse, and your kids because you're too busy working. You define yourself by your position or your degree. Well, guys, Christ came and died on the cross so that you don't have to prove your worth with a job title. You don't have to prove your worth with a degree. It's not bad to grind and have ambition and goals, but if that's all you think about and that's what you define yourself as, we're doing something wrong. Or maybe it's you chose to die on the hill of a political party. You don't just support the Republic or Democratic Party. You define yourself by it. Your identity is founded within it. And you begin to demonize the other side, look down upon these other group of people just because they don't have the same beliefs as you. That's not how we love and make the gospel present for everyone. That's not compassionate or loving. Christ died on, on the cross and on the hill so that we cannot die on the hill of a political party. Is Jesus used these coins and these temple taxes to show us that he accommodates to those around us? It might not be taxes for us, it might not be coins, but there's a lot of silly battles that we don't have to fight anymore. Yes, we have to maintain and die on the hills that he set out for us, but most everything else is down to context and situation. And thankfully, if you're a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us that will guide us. So my, my, my request for you this week, my challenge for you this week, is that you ask the Holy Spirit and you pray that he will show you the hills that you are willing to die on that Christ wasn't. And then repent, ask for forgiveness, and begin to walk with love and compassion in doing this, the world may understand Christians for what we are for rather than what we are against. And I think we all can agree that would be a much better state than we are in right now. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for your son as he used ordinary things to teach us extraordinary things about the kingdom of God. Lord, I, I pray that today as we live in this world of um, difficult times, of different messages, Lord, that we will die on the hills that you have told us to die on, but also, Lord, that we will make your message available to those around us. That we will love you in ways that we may not know right now, but Holy Spirit, I pray that you will show us that. And Lord, let us love you with our lives. In your son's holy name, amen.